You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law. A divided Supreme Court rejects a religious challenge. Tell us a little about the facts of the case. Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. My guest is former federal prosecutor Jimmy Garule. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Jordan Rubin. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. The Supreme Court takes on state secrets. Multiple lawsuits were filed against the emergency rule. Is this lawsuit for real? Bloomberg Law with June Grosso. From Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Ahead in this hour, a federal appellate court rules against J&J, saying it can't use bankruptcy to resolve more than 40,000 lawsuits over its baby powder. And the first NFT trademark trial pits Hermes against an artist and digital images of the famous Birkenbag. It's called the Texas Two-Step, but a federal appellate court has ruled that Johnson & Johnson can't use the bankruptcy of a specially created unit to resolve more than 40,000 cancer lawsuits over its now-withdrawn baby powder. The Texas Two-Step is a legal strategy that involves a company spinning off a unit and transferring its tort liability to that unit the spin-off is then put into bankruptcy to manage that liability without putting the assets of the original company into play. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals sided with cancer victims who argued that J&J wrongly put its specially created unit, LTL Management, under court protection in bankruptcy in order to block juries around the country from hearing the lawsuits and handing out damages. The bankruptcy case had put all talc litigation on hold while the appellate court made its decision. The ruling means that J&J will most likely need to defend itself against claims that tainted talc in its baby powder caused cancer. The company says it will appeal the decision. Joining me is Bloomberg Intelligence litigation analyst Holly Frome. Were there talks ongoing, settlement talks, before J&J put this unit into bankruptcy? Well, I'm not privy to any of those, but there were a bunch of cases settled. Like there were a thousand cases that had been settled because it was reported. And so there must have been settlement talks because to settle that big group of cases requires, you know, some kind of talk. But I don't think a formal mediation was set up yet. You know, the parties must have done it themselves. How many cases are there outstanding? Well, Jane Gay has said in its October 2022 filing that there's 40,300 cases outstanding. 
most of those are probably ovarian cancer cases. The cases that have been settled, are they ovarian cancer cases or others? We don't know. There were a group of them, so it's not clear. I mean, the bankruptcy court did say in its order that I think that they settled a little bit over 6000 for $1 billion, but I wasn't aware of that until the bankruptcy court put it in decision. And it doesn't say what the breakout of those was in terms of whether they were ovarian or meso. Tell us about the court's ruling here. So the bankruptcy court said that in order to use the bankruptcy procedure, that the filing has to be in good faith. And so it has to have a valid organizational purpose. And they basically found that it wasn't filed in good faith because it is not in financial distress. J&J has said it will appeal. So it can either ask for the full Third Circuit to hear the case, or it can go to the Supreme Court. And I'm curious about the settlement values. What would a settlement look like at this point? Well, in terms of, you know, value, I've put a value up for the cases of about 100000 a little bit more than 100000 about 125000 apiece. And that was pre-bankruptcy and post-bankruptcy with this ruling. But in terms of whether they settle all at once, you don't typically see that in these types of cases. You see inventory deals, but it's, you know, anything's possible. So, you know, if you wanted to use an example where a company settles, you know, a group of cases for a certain amount, you could look at Buyer, which settled about 100000 I think, for $10 billion. Now, that's still over time, I think, because, you know, they're deciding a lot of those cases will be vetted and will be dismissed. Um, but they came up with a number for a group of cases. And, you know, that's how they settled those. But typically, in these cases, when the number of plaintiffs is so huge, you'll see inventory deals where lawyers who represent groups of plaintiffs, sometimes they represent thousands of plaintiffs, will settle their cases with the company. And then distribution will be among their clients. Do the math for us. What's your figure for J&J settling? Well, right now I'm at $5 billion. You know, that's the number to go up or down. We haven't seen any federal bellwethers yet. And so typically the bellwethers can give you a good idea of the strength of the cases, but you haven't seen any federal bellwethers. You've seen state court trials in both meso and ovarian cancer cases, and the verdicts have been missed. And J&J, despite this, you know, huge $2 billion verdict that wasn't overturned by the Supreme Court in Missouri, has had pretty significant successes on appeal. So they reversed one that was for $417 million, you know, a lower court issued a judgment notwithstanding the verdict on a $417 million verdict to a plaintiff alleging ovarian cancer from talc, and that was in California. And when it went up on appeal, the court upheld us to J&J, so J&J was dismissed, but ordered a new trial as to JJCI, which is a subsidiary, and that sold talc. And then you also saw a metro verdict. I think it was for $325 million in New York, and that was overturned on appeal. And then there was a $117 million verdict in New Jersey that was overturned on appeal. So you've seen, you know, J&J has some significant success on appeal, which is why, you know, some people are throwing out astronomical numbers in terms of settlement value, particularly because they lost this bankruptcy maneuver. But these cases are not slam dunks. That's certainly true. But the verdicts have been mixed. So you think that this result is still going to push J&J to settlement? Most of these cases have to settle. I mean, the, the courts just don't have the bandwidth to try all these cases. So 
if there is no other way out, they've tried. Um, they've tried various theories, but you know they haven't worked. Then they're going to have to go to trial with the federal cases. And generally, the way it works is that they'll go to trial and then they'll get an idea of the strength of the case. And so then they can come up with some settlement value that way. Eventually, they'll have to settle these cases. And you can't. The courts just can't handle all these cases. And I don't think J&J wants to try these forever. In the Chapter 11 filings, J&J said that the subsidiary, LTL, had a value of more than $61 billion dollars and those funds could be tapped to satisfy talc liabilities. So why wouldn't it have been a smart move to to go through bankruptcy, negotiate and have those sixty one billion dollars in funds available for settlement? Why wouldn't the plaintiffs want that? Isn't that an easier way and the money's there? I don't know a lot about bankruptcy court, so it's hard for me to say what the plaintiffs were thinking. But in terms of my understanding of it, which they will do like an estimation proceeding where they come up with values for the case. And I think the plaintiffs thought that they would get less in bankruptcy court because you're not in front of a jury. There's no, there's not that risk of like nuclear verdicts that you've seen in some state courts. So I think that that was, you know, that probably came into the calculation. The company doesn't seem to be afraid of litigation. I mean, they've gone to the Supreme Court. No, I mean, it's an interesting case, certainly. I, I think I'm interested in seeing what the Supreme Court does. J&J has been up on appeals quite a number of times. You know, they, they lost their appeal of the $2.1 billion verdict. They filed a, another appeal where they were trying to get a citizen's petition that they, they rejected to have preemptive effect, and they lost that. So, you know, they're willing to litigate. They're <laughs> certainly willing to litigate these cases. Is there any other um, mass tort litigation that these talc suits resembles? Um, well, people compare it to asbestos because, you know, that's the theory that the plaintiffs have been using. But, um, you know, I would compare it to, to glyphosate litigation, which is the roundup litigation of Bioface because there were so many plaintiffs there. And the science was really not that strong in that case. Which, you know, that's my view as a scienceer is that it's not that strong. But still, the company wound up settling like 100,000 cases for $10 billion. So I would compare it to that case where you do have these, you know, you're going to, you're going to face juries. Um, there's no easy way out of these cases. And, you know, the difference there was that the verdicts up to the point of settlement hadn't been that mixed. I think there were three verdicts and they were all for plaintiffs. Here they've been mixed. But I would still say that that might be a good, good starting point to look at that case and see how that one played out. Probably we'll be talking about this J&J litigation for quite some time. Thanks so much, Holly. That's Holly from Bloomberg Intelligence Litigation Analyst. LTL's bankruptcy was the first Texas two-step to reach an appeals court. The handful of companies that have used this strategy since it emerged in 2017 have faced suits targeting their use of asbestos. Several Texas two-step mass tort asbestos bankruptcies that predate LTL's bankruptcy are still alive and pending in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Western District of North Carolina. The Third Circuit's opinion isn't binding in North Carolina or the Fourth Circuit, but its influence may still be felt. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Is it art or is it a digital knockoff? That's one of the questions at a trademark trial in federal court in New York, where French luxury design house Hermes International is suing digital artist Mason Rothschild for creating and selling Meta Birkin NFTs, which depict digital images of the famous Birkin handbag. Rothschild claims the Meta Birkin NFTs are artworks entitled to protection under the First Amendment, similar to Andy Warhol's silk screens of Campbell's soup cans. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Terry, set the stage for us. Tell us about these Meta Birkins. So Hermes has put out for decades now a type of tote bag, for lack of a better word, that they branded the Birkin. And the Birkin has literally become iconic in the fashion world. The least expensive one I could find online sold for $8,500, but most of these are, are far more expensive and can run over $100,000 each. It's a very high-quality bag made out of only the finest materials, and including um, esoteric things like ostrich and crocodile. The latches are made out of palladium or gold, you know, very expensive metal. The craftsmanship is absolutely the best in the world. It's a, it's a phenomenal handbag if you can afford to spend that much for a tote bag. All the celebrities brag about them, the Kardashians, Cardi B, all have them. And so in December of 2021, along comes a gentleman by the name of Mason Rothschild, who is involved in fashion and art and entertainment in Los Angeles. And he puts out online what he describes as Meta Birkin, and they are NFTs, non-fungible tokens in the digital world of the metaverse. And for all practical purposes, they are a two-dimensional image of the Birkin. He has embellished them in some ways, but they are fundamentally two-dimensional images of the Birkin in the form of NFTs, which he tried to sell online. Hermes finds out about this, sends a cease and desist letter accusing him of trademark infringement. 
And when he refuses to comply with the cease and desist letter, Hermes files a lawsuit for trademark infringement and, and other causes of action in the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York. Um, this is January 2022. And a year later, here we are, beginning of February 2023. And that lawsuit is now in trial in New York City in front of a jury. Ernest claims that, and it's cited social media posts too, that consumers were duped into believing that the NFTs were created or endorsed by Hermes. What about that cause of action? So this is fundamental to trademark law in the United States. Trademark law exists to protect consumers against being duped or tricked into buying goods or services under the mistaken assumption that they are um, being offered by someone other than the person actually offering. So in every trademark infringement case, it is necessary for the plaintiff, the trademark owner, to establish what we call consumer confusion. You don't have to establish that every consumer is confused, just a significant portion of them. And most courts say that that's in the range of 10 to 20% of the consumers, depending on the type of good or service. And the important aspect is it's got to be amongst the specific consuming public for that good. So in this case, these high-end Birkin topes. And the uh, argument here, which there seems to be some support for, is that people assume that Hermes had entered the metaverse and was putting out these meta Birkins. And there seems to be some evidentially support for that so far. We are only on day three of the trial, uh, but there has been testimony that one Hermes executive was teaching a class at, I think, Columbia University in New York City. And students came up to him after the class and asked about the new Hermes line of oh. Meta Birkins. And, and these are obviously they're Columbia University smart kids. And, you know, if they're being duped, that suggests that the broader public probably is also being duped into thinking that somehow Hermes is affiliated or associated with these Meta Birkins. Rothschild says, quote, my Meta Birkins project as a whole was an artistic experiment to explore where the value in the Birkin handbag actually lies in the handcrafted physical object or in the image it projects. And so he says, they're not replica Birkins, but they're art that depicts an imaginary bag. So his story has changed over time. When he first put these out in December 2021, he described them as a tribute to the iconic Hermes Birkin. Apparently, after the lawsuit was filed and he got legal counsel, he started to describe the Meta Birkins as a a commentary on the fashion company's mistreatment of animals and a way to own a Birkin without actually having to kill a crocodile, an ostrich, a cow, whatever the particular Birkin is made out of. So the story shifted over time. And the reason for that is that the defense strategy is try to bring itself within the Rogers v. Grimaldi test, which is a tricky test, and provide the First Amendment protection against trademark infringement. And we've talked about that test before. There was a case before the Supreme Court that we discussed involving Jack Daniels and their trademark bottle. We have, June, talked about this before, and I think just in December, when the case you're referring to, 
which goes by the title Jack Daniels versus VIP Products, was first accepted by the Supreme Court. They granted certiorari on it. And it's one of the confusing things here. Clearly, Judge Rakoff, who's the trial judge on this case, very smart man, very good judge. He must know that the Supreme Court is considering the Rogers v. Grimaldi test. And I would have thought, indeed, if I were the judge, I would have simply stayed this lawsuit pending Supreme Court guidance on whether the Rogers test even exists anymore. And if it does exist, what are the parameters for it? The same thought crossed my mind, although, as you said, Judge Rakoff is very good and very smart. So when I heard about this, I thought a couple of things. First, who would have bought these NFTs if it was, you know, these fur-lined bags not shaped like a Birkin? But also about Andy Warhol's sting silkscreens of Campbell's soup cans. If this was a painting in a gallery of a Birkin handbag, you know, would there be any question that it was considered art? So, June, I can't help you with the question of who was buying these <laughs> NFTs. And it's not just the meta Birkin. I don't understand why anyone buys any NFTs. So we'll just have to leave that to somebody else to answer. And I understand that some of these NFTs sold for as much as an actual Birkin. So I'd rather have the handbag. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. As for the Campbell suit, the Andy Warhol famous painting, that has been a trope that the defense has trotted out from a very early point in the case. They want to sell the notion that this is artwork and therefore an expressive work within the Rogers test that's protected by the First Amendment. That argument took a a body blow uh, yesterday in trial when uh, Judge Rakoff barred the defense's expert witness from testifying that the Meta Birkins were nothing more than the digital equivalent of Andy Warhol's Campbell Soup painting. The trial started on Monday with jury selection. I think the testimony first started yesterday, Tuesday, so we're in day three today. But that, in terms of trial strategy, was a very serious blow to the defense on the very first day of evidence through witnesses coming in that they weren't going to be allowed to present this key witness and probably weren't going to be able to talk about the Campbell soup argument. Coming up, I'll continue this conversation with Terrence Ross, and we'll talk about how both sides got off to a bad start at trial. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. We were discussing how the judge ruled on the first day of the trial that Rothschild can't present testimony from an art critic who studies the work of Andy Warhol. The critic was going to compare Rothschild's NFTs to the famous art created by Warhol, like the Campbell soup cans. Why did Judge Rakoff make that decision? Well, the the Supreme Court a number of years ago established uh, a very tough test for allowing expert witnesses to testify. Uh, And under that test, the district court judge, the trial judge has to determine that first, the witness is qualified in whatever field they're going to testify in. Two, that the opinion they intend to offer is um, based on solid methodology and grounded in some form of scientific approach. And third, that the results obtained by the expert in coming to opinion are replicable by other experts, because that's ultimately under science the way new theories 
are established and accepted in the scientific community. Somebody does the procedure, reports upon it in a peer-reviewed journal. Other scientists go out, they repeat the exact procedure, and they come up with the same result that, therefore, it becomes accepted in the scientific community. And what Judge Rakoff uh, said here is you maybe have the qualifications and experience to offer expert testimony, but there's nothing about how you reached your opinion that's based or grounded in any scientific approach, let alone replicable by other experts. And therefore, it doesn't pass the Supreme Court test, and I cannot allow it into evidence. And I thought Judge Rakoff's decision was absolutely correct in that regard. He also said that the Ramez experts' explanation of NFTs was overcomplicated and that the jury appeared puzzled to join the crowd. He said it was far more confusing than helpful. So this is the most common criticism of trial lawyers that you get from juries and individual jurors when you interview them after the fact. I've built my career on the ability to explain very complex things in very simple ways to lay people, such as jurors or judges. That is unusual. The vast majority of trial lawyers in the intellectual property space seem to um, fall into the trap of over-explaining in very unnecessary detail how things work. And NFTs are fundamentally about digital source code. And the lawyers and the expert they put on explain this went into great detail about how one writes source code and and about uh, digital coding and, and things that were really unnecessary instead of talking about NFTs in the way that most human beings talk about them <laughs> in, uh, in terms of analogies to real-world objects. Um, you know, on day one of the trial, of the, of the evidence of the trial, it seemed like both sides suffered significant blows. The loss of the expert was a blow to the defense. Um, this uh, dreadful approach to testifying about explaining NFTs by uh, the plaintiff's expert was um, a mistake and, and a blow to their case. So neither side got off to quick start in, in this trial. So, I mean, what does Hermes have to prove that it's confusing in the marketplace, that it's like, you know, the ripoff handbags that we see on the street? What exactly is, is its burden of proof here? The law, the Lanham Act is the name of the trademark law in the United States, and it prohibits anyone from, and I'm just reading here now, causing confusion or deceit as to affiliation, connection, or association, or as to origin, sponsorship, or approval of their goods or services with a trademark, uh, goods or services. And so you have to show that the consuming public, which I think would be someone in the luxury goods marketplace, that the consuming public would be thinking that somehow the Meta Birkin was affiliated with, connected with, associated with, sponsored by, or approved by Hermes. And so what we're going to hear a lot of is testimony for, on the plaintiff's side of instances in which consumers reported that sort of confusion to them. And the example of this one executive going and teaching at Columbia and being approached by students about the Hermes new Meta Birkin is a classic example of the sort of consumer confusion that's required to establish trademark infringement. And we'll just have to wait for the trial to go on to see how much more of that is. And then it'll be up to the jury to decide whether that's sufficient or not 
And then there's the Rogers v. Grimaldi test, which would be a defense even if there was consumer confusion. So if this jury believes that these NFTs are, in fact, art, then the defense would win? So let's just remember what the Rogers v. Grimaldi test is all about and remind people, even though we just did an episode on that back in December. This was a lawsuit by Ginger Rogers, the famous 1940s dancer, uh, against the producers of a, a movie who had titled the movie Fred and Ginger, I think was the name of Ginger referring to her, went up on appeal to Second Circuit in 1989. And they held that the use of a celebrity name in an expressive work if artistically relevant to that expressive work and not intentionally misleading is protected under the First Amendment against trademark infringement. And so it was a relatively narrow ruling, you know, limited to uh, celebrity names. It's been expanded beyond that to a broader range of trademarks. But again, the requirement has always been in connection with the use of that trademark in connection with an expressive work. If it's really artistically necessary to use that trademark. And if it's not misleading, intentionally misleading. And there's a lot of factual predicates there. That, and facts are determined by juries, not judges or lawyers. And so the first thing the jury is going to have to decide is whether or not the Meta Birkin is an expressive work. And that's why you see the plaintiff trying to push the notion that Mr. Rothschild was just out to make money here. And you see on the other side, on the defense side, the argument Mr. Rothschild is an artist and he, this was an artistic work. I mean, they want to bring it within this Rogers test and requirement establish it was an expressive work and artistically relevant, not intentionally misleading. And we'll just have to see how that plays out. I mean, Judge Rakoff said on a motion to dismiss brought by the defendants that he thought Rogers v. Grimaldi applied here. I think there's a big question mark about that. The case accepted by the Supreme Court, which came out of the Ninth Circuit, is the very first case in which the Rogers test was applied to a commercial product. There, it was a dog chew toy. And other circuit courts have consistently said that Rogers test does not apply to commercial products. NFTs are really a type of commercial product. And that's why this is at the intersection of technology and art. I mean, is the NFT work of art? Is it technology? Is it a bunch of source code? I mean, what is it? And I think Judge Rickhoff may have sort of jumped the gun by saying that the Rogers test applies when I think there's a lot of factual issues about that. And I really think it's going to depend on what the Supreme Court says in the Jack Daniels case, because the Supreme Court could. One option for them is to say, hey, you know, there is no such thing as a Rogers test. That was made up by a court. That's not in the statute. Statute already has a fair use test that should be applied instead of this Rogers test. I don't know what's going to happen. That's why I think it's very curious to allow this case to go forward when it all could become moot in June. Which side do you think has the better argument? Which side would you rather be representing? I, I always prefer representing the side that has the money to pay me. <laughs> and I doubt Mason Rothschild has that money. He's apparently using a new law firm that I think is sort of a public interest type firm called Lex Lumina that's made up of IP professors from Harvard and NYU. But as far as the law and the facts, this is a case to first impression. I think it's fair to say my gut reaction is that the Hermes side of the argument is a bit stronger. Particularly, I don't like the way that the defendant's story kept, kept changing over time, apparently in a sort of post hoc attempt to fit itself within the Rogers test. It's like, 
you lawyer up and you go, oh, you know what I should have been saying all along is that this is artistically uh, relevant. This is an expressive work. I'm not just trying to make money. I mean, I, they, they seem to be trying to force fit this into the Rogers test. And I'm not so sure that it fits, quite frankly. I mean, you asked the, the question though, very right? well, June. I think, who would buy this if it didn't have the Birkin name on it? If these were just called handbags, would any consumer actually buy these? I mean, isn't it the association with the Birkin iconic handbag that makes it you know, purchasable and people interested in it? I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. This case is fascinating on so many levels. It'll be really interesting to see what the jury makes of all this. And um... yeah, you know, this is a really important case to trademark law as the metaverse expands and uh, more companies move into it in an explicit way. And we've heard a lot of testimony already in just a couple of days that Hermes has plans to move into the metaverse, uh, and, and and therefore this would directly impact their ability to do that. And so, I mean, we, we need to probably um, update the Lanham Act to take into account this. The Lanham Act was enacted in 1954, if I recall correctly, you know, long before we had an internet or let alone a metaverse. And I really think Congress needs to take a look at this. Um, they've made a few minor tweaks over the years, um, but nothing to really address this sort of issue. Um, so, uh, you're absolutely right, June. It, it is a cutting-edge case and could be just the first of many, I think, we're going to see in this field. We'll keep track of what happens here. And that Jack Daniels case is going to be heard by the Supreme Court on March 22nd. So maybe we'll learn more about their take on the Rogers test at that point. Thanks so much, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to the Bloomberg Law Podcast or downloading the show at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And attorneys get the latest in AI-powered legal analytics, business insights, and workflow tools at BloombergLaw.com. With guidance from our experts, you'll grasp the latest trends in the legal industry, helping you achieve better results. For the practice of law, the business of law, the future of law, visit BloombergLaw.com. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.